Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Wondering if you've heard of the New World Order. I grew up in the 1980s, and uh, my grandmother would very frequently have uh, Christian television on, and there were a bunch of preachers that were warning everybody of the encroaching New World Order. It was far more fearsome than the shadow government that we often hear of today. Uh, The New World Order was a subversive and satanic one-world government that was going to give everybody the mark of the beast, which was evidently a computer chip in your hand, and you couldn't buy milk at the store if you didn't have the computer chip. And so lots of people were becoming increasingly terrified that, uh, that a globalist agenda was coming to enslave us all and to engage in the mass slaughter of uh, Christians. And it ended up being a very terrifying vision. And I think that was the purpose of the vision, to terrify people into the kingdom of God. I'm not sure that's how people, generally speaking, enter the kingdom of God. But nevertheless, uh, there was this message going out and a warning going out about the new world order. What's fascinating to me is Isaiah also has a vision for a new world order. At the end of his book, at the penultimate chapter of his work, he gives us his own vision for a new world order, but this is a new world order that is not instituted by an anti-Christic figure, but instead by God himself. I'd like to examine the text from Isaiah 65 uh, with you. And he, he gives us, from the first verse in our passage, a vision. He wants to call the reader's attention to this grand vision. He writes, behold, or look, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former thing shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, just a little bit of context before I get into my points. The context is this. Isaiah is writing to returning exiles. These are Jewish people who grew up in a culture that was very, very different from the mainstay of Israelite history. They grew up in Babylon. They grew up amidst pagans who did not acknowledge Yahweh and thought that the people and religion of Judaism, they were a joke. And so they've been mistreated for about 80 years, and now they're all coming into their homeland. And he uses this opportunity of homecoming uh, not to spill a lot of ink about how great it is to have our country back, how wonderful it is to see our farmlands again and to see the city. He's not trying to preach a message of uh, renewed or revived nationalism. Instead, he's trying to say, have a grander vision than all of that. I'm really writing to you about a new world order. I want to give you a picture of an entirely new way of seeing your future and the future uh, for everybody else. And so he gives these returning exiles a picture, um, one about a city, one about people, and one even about animals. So I'm going to be speaking about the New World Order as it affects a city, a people, and animals. So we'll begin with the city. And it's interesting that our text for today 
uh, begins and concludes with city language, with urban language. And I'd like you to read along with me, please. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And then now skip to the end of our passage. This is the end of verse 25. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So he uses a lot of talk about Jerusalem. Spills a lot of ink about Jerusalem. Now, what is Jerusalem? Just as a reminder, it's the capital city of Judah. It's built on the top of a mountain. That's why it's frequently referred to as Mount Zion. Uh, It has a very ancient story, uh, a very lengthy pedigree. This is where Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac, his son. This is where King David, King Solomon, and many of the other kings of, of Israel lived. It's where the temple was located. It was considered the center of the universe for Jewish people. Um, and the word Jerusalem quite literally means city of peace, city of peace. But like Philadelphia, right, the city of brotherly love, it rarely lived up to its name. Uh, It abused the poor. There were brothels and abandoned orphans and blood rituals to Moloch and demons. It, it, It had abortions. It had scam artists. It had everything that we have today. And because of this, because of the persistent sin of this city, which was supposed to be the city of Yahweh's peace, because of that persistent sin, God warned his people through prophets that eventually he was going to act like a hammer. He was going to come with great judgment against his people, and he was going to utilize a pagan nation to function as his hammer. And he chose as his hammer the, uh, the, the, the new and growing nation of Babylon. And so Babylon, at the height of its power, started taking over other nations. What was interesting about Babylon is they didn't just go in and devastate the country and kill everyone. They devastated the country and stole everyone and brought them back to Babylon because they thought what we will do is retrain everybody's brains. We'll reprogram them and then eventually send them back home as good Babylonian citizens. That was the thought. Well, that's what they did to the Jewish people. So I want you to think about the shattering of Jerusalem just for a minute as the Babylonians uh, came in. I want you to think about uh, uh, New York City after 9-11. Think about London after the Blitz. These cities that were covered and caked in ash and the broken brick and the severed steel and the churches and the homes that were, uh, that were left in reeking rubble. And think about all of that plus all the people being stolen away, right? Complete devastation. And so these people were stolen away for 80 years until a new generation arose that never knew what a homeland was like. Um, And Isaiah is giving them a picture of what this homecoming will look like, what this reentry will look like. And he, he gives them all these positive emotions in his 65th chapter. He, he says they'll experience joy, gladness, rejoicing as they reenter Jerusalem. So, As Isaiah is painting a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, 
he is saying to these returning exiles, look, I'm not just talking about Jerusalem as you know it or have heard of it. I'm using Jerusalem as a picture of something far greater. This is now a symbolic city. It's symbolic of something worldwide. It's symbolic of a new world order in which God is going to establish a new Eden-like city. Um, Isaiah speaks about Jerusalem as a new Eden in other places. For example, in Isaiah 51, just a few chapters earlier, this is what Isaiah prophesies. The Lord comforts Zion, another name for Jerusalem, and makes her wilderness, that is, after the devastation of the exile, makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. What is he saying? I will take this place and create out of it a symbol of that which is to come, the restoration of the original paradise. I will create out of you an innocent metropolis. In other words, there will come a day when we will walk together again, when there will not be this enmity between us, when all the hammers will be buried, all the axes burned up. Uh, And so the city becomes a picture a picture of an original paradise restored. Uh, There uh, was a a musical that was uh, produced in the late 90s called Children of Eden. It has some good music and some terrible theology, Um, but it was about the original creation and the expulsion from the garden. And there was a particularly moving scene in this uh, musical in which uh, Eve is sick and dying Uh, Adam has already died, but Eve is with her children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. They surround her as she's dying in a forest of dead trees. And she is grieving over her mistakes, mourning for her losses. And then in that state of sadness, she passes away. And as soon as she passes away, God enters the stage dressed in dazzling white and reminiscent of the language from Genesis after the fall where God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? God looks at her and says, there you are. I found you. And Eve, now resurrected, looks at him and says, I've missed you. And they hold on to each other. And then the stage lights all burst with green, and everything becomes Eden again. So Eve is embraced by the new heavens and the new earth. It's a beautiful vision, and that's what he's trying to say to these returning exiles. Behold, there's a new heavens and a new earth coming, and the Jerusalem that I'm about to give you is a symbol of what is to come on a much grander scale. So that's something about the city. Now something about the people within this new world order. This is the bulk of the text, really. It has to do with people, not the city. Verses 19 through 24 deals with human beings who experience a fundamental and permanent metamorphosis. You know, Isaiah foretells in this passage of the unmaking of the curse of Genesis 3. You may remember, so after Adam and Eve pursue personal divinity in the fall, consuming the forbidden fruit, God injects death, inglorious labor, and pain related to child-rearing into the human story. And what's fascinating about this prophecy from Isaiah is that all of those things are overturned forever. 
We'll consider death, for example. This is verse 20 of our passage. No more shall, shall there be in it, in the new city, an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. You may remember that at the, uh, at the fall, but also at the, uh, God's warning regarding the fall, he says to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. What I find fascinating about the Adam and Eve narrative is that they do eat and they don't die. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we can say that they die spiritually, but physically they don't die quite yet, right? They live on for quite some time. But... I think what that passage indicates, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, is from now on, if you eat of this, the potential for death, physical death, is there every second of every day. The sword of Damocles will ever linger above your head, and you don't know when the cord will be snapped. So now you live within a world of untimely death. And Isaiah envisions a world in which people are not under threat. Young people are not under a threat. Old people are not under a threat. But here is what I find fascinating. Even in Isaiah's gifted imagination where he looks to God's perfect future, uh, he has hope that people will live way beyond 100 years, but his hope is not hopeful enough. In other words, the New Testament surpasses even Isaiah's vision. It's even better than what Isaiah has in mind. It's not that you'll die happy after 150 years. It's that you won't die at all. For I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. And he who believes in me shall never die. Uh, and so it even exceeds Isaiah's prophecy. So death is overturned. Also inglorious labor, which all of us have experienced, um, except me as your priest. Uh, every, every day is a, is a waking dream of joy. Um, but uh, <laughs> especially in Corona land. Um, but, but in glorious labor, right, that we all do experience. This is verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build another, and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. And later, they shall not labor in vain. Now, he's speaking to exiles who, you know, didn't stay where they ought to have stayed. This is also a reference to Adam and Eve who are exiled from their garden paradise. All we know is life in an exile. We're not home yet. And that's why no matter how much money you have or no matter how many additions you put onto your house or how many times you, you know, paint your living room, you're not going to feel like you're fully at home as we all live within the exile. Uh, and within the exile, our labor is in part in vain. And this is uh, illustrated in the fall narrative where God says to Adam, yeah, before you were supposed to work the ground and it would work with you, now it works against you because it's going to be polluted with thorns and thistles that will eventually, as we know, be wrapped around the head of the Son of God to bear the curse for our sins. But, uh, but that's the world you inherit now, where labor is in vain. Well, no more, because it says in the future, they shall not labor in vain. You'll still work, and you'll love it. So something about death overturned, something about inglorious labor, and something about pain related to children. It says in verse 24, they shall not bear children for calamity. 
Well, that was not the experience of Adam and Eve, whose first child, Cain, turned out to be a murderer. They did bear children for calamity. And it goes back to the curse against Eve that, that says that in, um, in you, you shall have increased pain in childbirth, right? That even from the very start of this child's existence, pain will be created for you. And now that pain related to having children uh, will be relieved. And so he is giving people in this new world order a vision of holistic recovery. That's why C.S. Lewis used to say to people that we live in the shadow lands and that real life has not begun yet. Your life as you're living it now isn't fully real. Because what sin is is unreality, right? It attacks the reality of God. And our future will be laden with reality, healing, loving, restorative reality. And for us as people, the new world order has not begun yet, and therefore real life hasn't either. And so we have something about the city, something about people, and lastly, just for fun, something about animals. This is verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is another flashback to the garden, right? And now we see that the food chain is overturned. Carnivores become herbivores, and life is preserved. Animals are not killing each other. So all the animals succeed, except one. Did you notice that? Not all animals do very well in the new world order. The serpent. The serpent is cursed to eat dust. Now, the serpent image, of course, goes back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. And the serpent there, we learn from later biblical texts, is the incarnation of Satan, that chaotic an antagonistic figure within scripture, that shadowy figure who returns oddly enough and time and time again in the Old Testament as the dragon, the Leviathan, the sea serpent, the one who dwells within the chaos of the created order and occasionally rises to uh, create chaos in our world. Well, in Genesis 3, God places a curse upon the serpent. He says to the serpent, you will crawl on your belly and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. It's a posture and a diet of humiliation. And what's fascinating about Isaiah's prediction regarding this new world order is that all curses on creation will be overturned, except one. Except one, the serpent will suffer an eternal humiliation. The only thing without a future in God's world is evil. It remains under heaven's everlasting displeasure. And what a good word this is. You may remember that within the curses of Genesis 3, uh, there is a deliberate order to them. God first curses the serpent, uh, and then he curses um, the woman, and then he curses the man. Um, and what's fascinating about the curse on the serpent is that there is a whisper and a hint in it of redeeming grace. Not only that the serpent will eat dust, but that the serpent's head will be crushed as he attempts to attack the descendant, the singular descendant of Eve, which is Jesus. And so Christ becomes the skull crusher, the one who defeats evil once and forevermore. Um, and so we have a new world order in which 
Uh, the animals are no longer red in tooth and claw. And one animal, the incarnation of all that is chaotic and wicked and antithetical to God, remains under heaven's permanent displeasure. This is the new world order, the new heavens and the new earth that will unmake our current status quo. We will receive a new Edenic city. So that's something about the city, the people, and the animals within this new world order. But what is the word to us today in 2020, this bright and cheery year? Um, That was uh, ridiculous. Uh, What conclusions would I draw for us from Isaiah's incandescent prophecy of the new new world order? Well, I think he gives us a word that is both holistic and optimistic. It's a holistic vision that he gives to us, right? That God's reconstructive concern certainly includes our eternal souls, but it goes well beyond our innards as well. God has bigger plans for you and for the world. God will siphon the pollution from the Ganges River and from Flint, Michigan. He'll stop the child sex trade and abortion. He'll eject unjust judges and politicians from their IKEA thrones He will heal our ethnic divides and our political tensions. He will bring to justice our scamming companies and our deceiving tech corporations. He'll forever cure our relational standoffs. He will get rid of our birth defects, our broken brains, and our broken bodies. He'll bring healing to all things. God is a reconstructive surgeon. God is a reconstructive surgeon who operates on everything that is wrong. Everything that is wrong. God's concern for us is in fact so holistic that he himself, if I can put it this way, atomizes. That in the incarnation, in God becoming a human being, the creator of atoms and cells becomes bonded to them irreversibly and for all time in the form of a zygote in the womb of an unwed mother. He himself, born into his own creation, intends to restore every last square inch of that creation. He has a holistic concern. Uh, And so all of the people that you miss, all of those who will be absent from you because of ailment or death this Christmas, uh, all of those hands you can no longer hold, those embraces you can no longer have, all of those things will be returned to you. It's part of the new world order and God's holistic concern for your life and your renewal. And creation waits in groaning expectation for the revelation of the sons of God. And you are in that number. So there's a holistic vision from Isaiah that I hope will capture our imaginations and our expectations. But there's also an optimistic vision he foresees amidst his own cultural pains and horror shows a happily ever after. Why? On what grounds? Is he some romantic, some pie-in-the-sky devotee with a blind faith? I mean, we are in the midst of, like, the year from hell in some ways, right? 2020 with all of its rancid components. I mean, consider it. From the coronavirus to the death of Sean Connery. It's just a rough year (laughs) through and through. How have we not become 100% cynical about all of this? How is Isaiah himself in the midst of his own uh, terrible a context not consumed by cynicism. Well, Scripture's unashamed optimism, I really want to make this point and bring it home. I hope I can. Scripture's unashamed optimism underscores its divine inspiration. 
Scripture's optimism underscores its divine inspiration, that this text that we have today is divine revelation. It's more than some work of flawed human beings with some vague spiritual interests. One of the ways that we know that scripture is sourced in God is that it is so counterintuitive to our fallen nature that it has to be divine. How could anybody write such a thing within the world in which we live? It's ridiculous unless, unless it is sourced from a hopeful heaven. Because if it's sourced from a hopeful heaven with redemption on mind, well then, um, it must be given to us to lift us to something, lift us to an imagination that is higher and loftier than our base natural instincts and inclinations. And so not only are the words of Scripture inspired, but the tone of Scripture is inspired. The tone of hopefulness, the tone of optimism is directly inspired. Uh, and, and, and it's not just pie in the sky, and we know that as Christians because it's already happened once, you know. Like, heaven did land on earth. Something did happen. This is a beautifully illustrated in Zeffirelli's um, now rather dated uh, three-part series entitled Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe you've seen the movies. They're put on every Christmas and Easter on one channel or another. Well, anyway, there's this beautiful scene after the resurrection of Jesus in which the, the tomb is wide open and empty that one of the key Pharisees of skeptic runs to the tomb in great panic after hearing that Jesus had risen from the dead and he sees the empty tomb and the grave clothes left behind on the slab and looks in an utter horror and his companion says, well, good, at least it's all over now. And this, the one Pharisee looks and it says, oh no, it's only just begun. It's only just begun. The same thing could have been said at the first advent of Christ, at the birth of Christ, as he lays there screaming in the dark in a manger, it's only just begun. God has landed and now all things are possible. And the universe is painted with optimism despite the reality of of the fall, not because it ignores or is naive about the fall, but because that child will grow up to swallow it whole on the cross and devastate it within his own body. So your ultimate destination is the garden city. Our current city of death will die and be replaced by heaven's new world order, a new heavens and a new earth in which we will at long last see the one face to face, and our eyes shall see him, and not like a stranger. And maybe, just maybe, he'll say something like, there you are, I found you. And we will respond with, and I missed you. And all will be mended by the healing and reverberating love of Christ that makes all things new. All right. Free at last, they took your life, they could not.